I'd like to take his face. Oh. You call himself ass kick instead. Have you ever been dragged to the sidewalk and beat to you? Yes! Am I getting through to you? Welcome to We Bought a Mike. We bought a Nick, mm-hmm. a pop culture cage cast. Oof. Like I like that updated intro. We had to throw some vampires kiss on there after last we week. We really had to. We really had to. We're deep in this cage series. Uh, this is our fourth movie. Uh, fourth? Third? Fourth? Yeah, no, fourth. Fourth. Vampire's Kiss was our third. We've done Raising Arizona, Moonstruck, Vampire's Kiss, and now here we are with Wild at Heart, a film by David Lynch, the man. Mm. Mm. Daddy Lynch in the house. Not, not in the house. Yeah. I wish he was. Yeah, he's, he's right over here. Hello, fellas. Can I, can I interest you in some of my artwork? The weather outside in sunny Los Angeles is 78 degrees today. Thank you, David. That's you a can beautiful. go. All right. Th- thanks, David. Thanks. You can go now. Uh, thank you. <laughs> I don't have any questions for you. No, no, no. Please, please leave. Please leave. Oh, no. He's going into a power socket. <laughs> oh, no. He's, he's going gonna... into the electricity circuitry. <laughs> there, there he goes. Oh. There, there he goes. I hope I hope our guest didn't have any questions for Mr. David Lynch. It's too late now. He's gone. I'm Ernest. I am Bobby Peru. Like the country. Hunter. Hi, and, uh, I'm Colin Cody. <laughs> jump right in here. I'm, I'm happy to be here. Joining us uh, for, I think, what, the third or fourth time? Um, Might be part of the four timers club now at this point. Might be. Last dear, time I was here, it was talking about Magnolia, and that was about that's right. that was mm-hmm. last April or so. So it's been an yep. entire year, but happy to be back and happy to be talking some David Lynch and uh, mostly Nicolas Cage. Yeah, we had to. Drew is not here today for the Sadly. podcast. Um, but we miss you, bud. Because Drew, he gets too scared about David Lynch. He thinks that all David Lynch movies are just scary. Um, I try and tell him that they aren't, but then like I rewatch all of his movies, I'm like, eh, I can see why people would be disturbed by some of this. Um, so we had to have you on, Colin, since you are our David Lynch expert. Uh, you are the only person I know who shares a love of David Lynch like I do. Um, I am wearing a Twin Peaks shirt as we are doing this podcast. I know, Colin, you also have several Twin Peaks shirts. So we had to have you on for this one. I'm so disappointed Drew is not here because I was going to rant to him because uh, I listened to every single episode of We Bought a Mic. And I've noticed that Drew keeps talking about celebrities' teeth and teeth being (laughs) It's oh man, insane. If I have to hear Drew one more time say, Oh, this is before blah blah blah, I got their teeth fixed, I'm gonna go, I'm gonna go nuts. So, this is actually the first one. This is a film before Willem Dafoe got his teeth fixed. His <laughs> teeth actually just used to look like that. I wish horrible <laughs> teeth in the movie. 
but yeah, Drew, he just doesn't want to watch David Lynch movies because uh, he knows that we like them. And then he's going to watch it and be like, man, these are great movies. And then he's going to have to come crawling back to us. So I think that's why he bailed out. Can we just well, talk shit about Drew? <laughs> yeah, yeah, this, 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 this is just what the podcast is. No, we, we love Drew. We miss Drew. This, this movie, um, he seemed to enjoy it. Yeah. Um, but you know, he could have come in with a, with a hot flaming fiery take. Um, I guess we'll never know. Yeah, I it guess, been like, I think this would have been better if Jill Schumacher made it. I guess Drew got turned into a skate, a snakeskin jacket. And I will never see him again. Yeah. Well, so you, you hinted at Ernest, we actually, uh, the three of us, the podcast boys actually had to come together to watch this film because this is kind of the lost David Lynch movie in a lot of ways. Well, Inland this Empire is, too. That Inland Empire too, but this is like I think that this is very forgotten about in David Lynch's filmography because Blue Velvet, which came out a couple years before this, was a big success. That's still, I think, the most accessible David Lynch movie. If you're going to like tell somebody where to start with Blue Velvet, I or where to start with David Lynch, I'd probably say start with Blue Velvet because um, it doesn't. It's a little bit softer on the edges which is kind of a funny thing to say if you've seen blue velvet before um but then right after this movie david lynch makes twin peaks which was the biggest show in the world in 1991 i i think he had already shot the pilot before he made this movie because there is a lot of overlap in the cast yeah a ton of overlap so in the cast. i think the the pilot was already in the can but um yeah i'm calling I'm not sure about the timeline because it's like what this movie came out in 1990 right when twin peaks was airing yep. so i needed like a definitive timeline to say you know did he make twin peaks then leave the show and then make wild at heart i'm not too sure about that one but i'd just been in the heart, middle of it very possibly in between season one and two but um wild at heart obviously it came out before any of us were ever born but just doing some research it seemed to kind of have a lot of buzz around it like it won the palm door at the Cannes film festival yeah. it's super weird looking back shocking yeah it's just like really this one like i'm not like saying there's anything wrong with the movie but it's just bizarre it's like really like out of the whole festival the grand prize went to wild at heart and just doing a quick uh, uh wikipedia search reading the article on wild at heart it's described as a controversial pick for that festival for sure. a lot of people are upset and apparently Roger Ebert, uh, excuse me, Roger Ebert was there like booing while it was winning. He was like leaving <laughs> the crowd of the boo. Roger, oh my God. Roger. <laughs> yeah, because he hated this movie. I, uh, I, it is kind of surprising. I'm looking at some of the films on here and like uh, Akira Kurosawa's Dreams opened up at Cannes. So for same year, this yeah. movie to beat out that, like I could see why Ebert was very upset. Ebert, uh, not the biggest David Lynch fan in the world i checked out the siskel and ebert review of this movie and they were all they're both very upset yeah they uh did, were not the biggest fans of this film but colin you're not only a dear friend of the show but you're probably the biggest david lynch head that i know other than hunter so you know other than the obvious uh, why did you pick this movie? This is something I've been asking every guest because this is a recurring thing with this series is I'm letting the guests pick the movies, kind of giving them free range over the Cage filmography. Um, so what made you want to gravitate towards this other than the only Lynch movie in Cage's filmography? Well, if we're just going to leave out the David Lynch aspect to it, 
uh, I guess <laughs> I just have to say Nicolas Cage and Laura Dern have wonderful chemistry in this movie. It's definitely a joy to watch them together, especially at these like young pr uh, prime times in their career. So there's there's that going for it other than just being like, oh, it's a David Lynch movie. I want to watch that one. So uh, and it's kind of a forgotten little gem of the 90s. And uh, David Lynch's filmography, Wild at Heart, it's not quite up there with like Blue Velvet, Mulholland Drive, or anything Twin Peaks related. It's kind of it's kind of forgotten about a little bit, and want to shine a little light on it because uh, I think it I think it deserves to be talked about. There's some great stuff in this movie. I love this movie. This is a amazing, amazing movie. I much like Lynch's whole body of work. It's not really for everybody. Mm -hmm. Um, I also checked out my, uh, my blue velvet Blu-ray, um, that on was the a criterion, watched, right? Ernest second, second time. The okay. first time I, I watched it, I, uh, I didn't really like, didn't really dive into it that much. I, I kind of, uh, maybe I was on too much Soylent at the time or something, but I remember bits of it. Like I remember Kyle McLaughlin in a closet. Like that image is burned in my mind, but it felt very fresh. It felt like I was watching it for the first time. And I, I loved it. I feel like blue velvet is just slightly more accessible than this, but it also gets like kind of more demented than this. This, this has some dark shit in it. Like it, it has some demented stuff, but I don't know. I feel like blue velvet, blue velvet is like a perfect movie to me. I don't know if wild at heart quite is, but it does have that, um same kind of like surface level sheen that very quickly gives way to a very dark sinister underbelly that lynch does so so well where he doesn't just drop you in the deep end uh maybe more so in this one with the first mm -hmm. kind of brutal scene but you don't really uncover like how twisted he can get until the movie really really gets along and obviously like you mentioned Cage and Laura Dern. We're going to talk about them plenty. Willem Dafoe's also in this. Like the performances in this are amazing. Crispin Glover. Yeah, Crispin it's the Glover. best use of Crispin Glover in any movie. Uh, it's, great, it's a so great movie. And Isabella Rossellini, other yeah. alumni, Harry Dean Stanton. Yeah. This is really, I mean, kind of, it's Lynch kind of going into his bag for this movie. I mean, Laura Dern just worked with on Blue Velvet, but then, yeah, Jack, Lan uh, Jack Nance, Sherilyn Flynn, Cheryl Lee, like people who are, you just go on to define the show Twin Peaks are just all over the show. Diane Ladd, Oscar nominated for this movie. Yeah, yeah. Um, one nom it secured. Mm -hmm. I, I should say I'd be remiss if we said this isn't an episode of a uh, crack and cry. It's an episode. Oh, what is this? Is this a new thing? It's 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 scratch and shout. Um, oh, uh, <laughs> shout factory. Yes, it's a shout factory release. Um, this is one of the things I was saying about this being a lost movie. It's not just that uh, just a lot of people don't know about it. Part of the reason for that is because the distribution for years for this film was awful like you just could not find this movie which is insane for david lynch who's known as probably one of the greatest auteur filmmakers of the 20th century and what 
Shout Factory did a release, I think it was two years ago uh, for this film, because before you could buy it on like DVD on Amazon, but it didn't really have a official Blu-ray release or anything like that. So it was super old, like probably like a 20 year old release. Yeah, like early 2000s. Yeah, and it was like not very good restoration or anything like that. So Shout did a very good job of kind of cleaning up the film and putting it uh putting it all together put some great special features on there we watched a feature at, at the end the making of, the, of yeah. the making of which i'm sure we'll talk about throughout uh this episode but i uh i'll say like i also really love this movie i like this movie a lot more seeing it for the second time um i watched this movie for the first time last january specifically um it was the day that kobe bryant died um, and I know this because I was watching this film and there's a very specific scene where there's a character named Mr. Rudolph and he's sitting in a chair and there's two nude women standing on each side of him. And at that exact moment, I got a text from Drew saying, yo, Kobe Bryant died. And uh, I think that's a very early on in the movie that that happens. And I think I just couldn't fully get my head back into the space you of click the movie. play but it didn't really yeah like it was just i didn't really play i wasn't quite there anymore like i was already had a little bit of a disconnect in my head after seeing that but i mean i'm <laughs> now that we are over a year past that like i i really really loved seeing this movie we'll talk about it but like david lynch's take on wizard of oz which is really what this movie is it's just an <laughs> It's just him doing his version of Wizard of Oz and his idea of a romance is really good. It can like be very on the nose at times, but I think that's kind of the point to it <laughs> when you have certain scenes of characters just saying like, maybe you're picturing Toto from the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> it's you're just seeing the, um, the Wicked Witch writing. Yeah. Sorry, Colin, what were you saying? There's a big Elvis thing, like Elvis mm-hmm. movie type thing going on here i'm not well versed in in elvis movies unfortunately but while watching it you can definitely get the idea even a uh, uh, nicholas cage's character sailor uh loves to break out into song a couple times and mm-hmm. some we love to see it amazing stuff really well done um it, it's he's definitely lip syncing but he's lip syncing his own singing like you can yeah, tell he, that's his yeah. voice mm-hmm. he and it works really too. well yeah yeah, he nails it. it. It's that crooner. You know, he's definitely doing Elvis. Drew uh, pointed out that he kind of sounds like Johnny Bravo which a little bit, cr- which <laughs> makes me think Johnny Bravo didn't premiere until like maybe five years after this movie came out. So, hey, maybe Johnny Bravo sounds uh, like Nick Cage. Sounds like Nick Cage. <laughs> that, that is on point because Johnny Bravo is a bad Elvis impersonation. And that's kind of what Nick Cage is doing in this role. But it works so well. His chemistry with Laura Dern is just like, I don't think that we'll see chemistry like that between Nick Cage and other actresses for the rest of this series. Like they are just a couple that works on screen really, really well. Um, real quick about Laura Dern. I, I, I'm so fascinated by her because she just won her first Oscar for um, marriage story, marriage story. And she's had such a storied career. Um, she did Blue Velvet, I believe, four years after uh, before this. And um, let me see. I'm sorting letterbox by release date. Here we go. Um, and and then Jurassic Park came out four years after this. So if you think about her role in Blue Velvet to her role 
in Wild at Heart to her role in Jurassic Park. It's like three entirely different performances. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't think she gets the credit she deserves. I mean, obviously she just won an Oscar, so that's a level of acclaim, but like watching her in this movie, I was just like, God damn, this woman is so talented. Like we don't talk about her. I think that she, unfortunately, she was kind of born of that generation right before there started to be more movies made like starring big women, like starring women, um, that weren't just like rom-coms and stuff like that. Like, I think if she was maybe born 10 years later, then she would have an even bigger run of films. Cause I mean, yeah. Like if you look in between her big hits in the eighties and the nineties, there isn't really a ton of stuff to speak of. I mean, she'll do like, she was in October sky in 99, but even in between Jurassic park and October sky, it's like, in like an episode of Frasier in a perfect world, citizen Ruth, like she's not getting, big big movie parts despite showing that she has incredible range as an actress gonna, i was gonna say that movie citizen ruth is actually pretty great and she's amazing in that movie like that's a that's definitely like a a hidden gem movie citizen ruth it's I've a, never seen that it's a alexander yeah. Payne. it was like one of his first movies it's really good from what i remember so definitely check that one out if you want more Dern. She plays a very troubled character in that movie. That's all I'll say about that. You know, I, it's, one of, it's one of Payne's like comedy dramas that mm-hmm. really dramatic stuff with also, you know, ridiculous comedy stuff too. You know, she's going to be in the new Jurassic uh, World movie. Really? <laughs> yeah. Her, Goldblum, and Sam Neill are all back. Ooh, Sam Neill, that's going to be weird. Yeah, I know. Weird. Uh, Sam Neill looks kind of rough these days, too. That's uh, yeah, they're really a getting up. a lot of turns. She was in like Last Jedi and then Marriage Story. So we're kind of ready for it. But Sam Neill, man. she was in the uh, Little Women, too, right? Little Women. Yeah, Little Women. Little yeah. Women. yeah. Um, um, also, of, of course, it, it, she's uh, she's in Twin Peaks, The Return, mm-hmm. like amazing role. Yeah, she is. I mean, I I am in love with Laura Dern. I love everything about her. In this movie, she like she really outshines Cage in a couple of the scenes. Like this kind of becomes her movie in a lot of ways, which isn't really what you expect. I mean, Nick Cage has top billing in this movie just because he had a few more commercial hits before this. Laura Dern didn't really, and man, uh, that too. but yeah, you could really flip those because this really is like Laura Dern's story. Like she is the Dorothy of this movie. They're they're kind of the same person, though, aren't they? They're kind of like two extremely intertwined individuals who have such a bond that they are kind of the same person. They can't escape each other. You know, as soon as he gets out of jail, he jumps in her car. You know, it's like there is this adhesion to their relationship. It's it's they're conjoined. <laughs> you know, there are very, people like that. It's definitely very over the top. And I think the movie is basically just driving in the point where it's just like these two are just crazy about each other. They're just crazy in love. Crazy kids. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And they're going off in their car and listening to, to Power Mad and yeah. all that crazy stuff. But uh, one thing I want to say is... Uh, I know listeners can't see us, but the the cover of this movie, the poster, oh, yeah. incredible. Yeah, I that's amazing. 
I see you have the the flipped out, so you have the theatrical actual poster of this. It really is great. The intro of this movie is like the most like welcome to the 90s shit ever. It's just block letters, wild at heart, and then flames in the background. Love it. It's, it's so cool. The great 90s title. are here. Okay. It's kind of interesting. Like Lynch doesn't really do a lot of adapted screenplays. So like something about this book speaking to him and him, I like, I'm kind of interested to read the book now. Cause I'm sure the book is drastically different. Like mm-hmm. it can't have, I'm sure that there isn't like them walk. They like, Oh, there's a scene where they walk into a bar and there's like a man who talks with like a kazoo voice. Like, I don't think that's written on the page. I think that's just Lynch voice Lynch's touch. Somebody on YouTube pointed that out as the munchkins from wizard of oz i so i actually i guess i can my brain like exploded i was like yes i can do it now or later i wrote down like a long list of all the wizard of oz parallels because there is there's a bunch that i put on there save it before we dive into the movie i just want to do a little bit of table setting here because you know with this cage series we're not going to talk about every cage movie we we wouldn't want to he has a lot of doo-doo um and we're we only talk some of the doo-doo. Yeah, we're 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 picking 16 movies that kind of tell like a broad scope of his career arc. Um, but there are some some gems that we're going to miss out on down the line. This run right here does not really have any gems. So after Vampire's Kiss, which by the way was a massive flop, um, you know, coming off of the the hit that Moonstruck was. Uh, he does uh, Firebirds, which, what the hell is that? I don't know. Yeah, I've is. never heard of that. <laughs> and then he does Wild at Heart. Um, and then between Wild at Heart and Leaving Las Vegas, which is the next movie that we're going to do, it's just a bunch of just doo-doo. It's Honeymoon in Vegas, Amos and Andrew, Red Rock West, Guarding Tess, which I think was a, a bit of a hit. Um uh, it could happen to you, which was slightly more uh, trapped in paradise and kiss of death. So this is like just a, a massive lull for Cage before he gets his Oscar in leaving Las Vegas. Wild at Heart made about $14 million um, at the box office off of a $10 million budget. So, you know, not a massive hit, but not a um, it's not a bad flop. as far as lynch movies go to make 14 mil exactly <laughs> lynch, lynch doesn't really make movies for box office games exactly I think lynch's biggest movie was dune which was also like a huge flop yeah it's funny that is yeah you're right that's his most commercially successful movie and that's considered like a huge blockbuster flop lynch couldn't catch a break at the box office unfortunately well it makes sense if you've seen any david lynch movie why like just your average like Kevin living in Arkansas, 45 year old man wasn't just like, yeah, I want to go see Mulholland Drive. I want to go see a movie that challenges the American values. You know what I mean? <laughs> I want to I want a movie that deconstructs the American dream and shows how vile it actually is. People don't want to see that. They just want entertainment. So eh, it is what it is. I'm just happy we can watch the movies now. Yeah. Well, let's let's dive into it. So we uh, like you said, we open with fire and flames and flames have like a real theme to the movie, you know, lots of cigarettes, lots of matches. And it it, it, it ties into 
this fiery love between these uh these crazy kids in love um and we get this uh this sequence of cage like brutally murdering yeah that's how man. the movie like just starts with just cage and dern just walking down the stairs and a guy's just like hey i saw the guy's name is bobby ray lemon uh comes up to cage and pulls a switchblade on him and cage just fucking destroys this dude also we have to say cage's name just iconic his name sailor is sailor ripley, ripley. what it. a great name awesome fuck i want to name my kids sailor ripley the opening is so jarring because it's so violent. You have that like uh, power metal music or power mad, whatever it is that plays a third times throughout. And like instantly right away, the movie is kind of off putting and you're basically going to like be into it or you're not. You're either walking out yeah. of the theater or you're you're into it. So, you know, it's just classic. Uh, what the fuck, David Lynch. But it, it, it perks you up. It gets you going into the movie because it's like what? It's the very first scene, isn't it? Exactly. Yeah. Right, right away you're just there. And yeah, you're right. That like power metal kind of thing, the down, 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 that just plays like five or six times throughout the movie. He like bashes like the back of the skull in. It's, it's brutal. It's so much it more over the top than it ever needs to be. But, but it lets uh, you know what kind of movie yeah, this is about. To be. Right. And the fact he went to jail for what, like two years for that. Yeah. That man should go to prison for a lot longer than two <laughs> years. I don't care if the other guy had a switchblade. He just like bashed a dude's brain in with just his hands. So he gets out of prison. And uh, what do you know? Laura Dern. Uh, Lula. Lula is waiting for him outside by the way lordern's screaming when he's killing that guy that also lets you know what kind of movie this is lordern like so over the top lordern is the best open mouth screamer of like film history like she just the way she like openly like frowns while she's screaming it almost looks like like a clown like a clown makeup yeah. like a like but she does it in blue velvet too can you do an impression of uh laura dern screaming sailor he has a knife or later <laughs> thank you um, it's so high <laughs> one thing i want to uh, point out about the beginning that i really like is uh when he's in jail you get that like crystal ball imagery in the hand yes. <laughs> Across it, just that fun, atmospheric, aesthetic, uh, fantasy creepiness that I just absolutely love in movies. It does kind of set up that this movie is gonna have like some fantasy, almost like fairy tale elements to it, like right away. It's like between those first two moments, you see like a very brutal murder, manslaughter scene, and then you have uh the crystal ball like right after it you're like okay so this is not a film that is set in reality like i can kind of you know that you're along for a little bit of a fantasy journey so i pulled up the clip of um when he gets uh picked up from pd correctional institution <laughs> um so we're gonna take a look at this real quick here and uh here one of my favorite quotes which we will have a quote, a yeah, best cage quote section at the end of this podcast. Um, but this is this is like 
up there for me in terms of like best cage quote. Here we go. So we, we see his beautiful shades. Lula. Wow. Baby, I got a surprise for you. Hey, my big skin jacket. Thanks, baby. <laughs> Did I ever tell you that this here jacket represents a symbol of my individuality and my belief in personal freedom? About 50,000 times. I got some room at the Cape Fear. And guess what? Power Man's playing at the hurricane. hurricane. Stabbing and steer. And then you Love can hear it. that. I just, it's so good. All of, I just try to, that's my peanut. Hands down. There's no arguing that this snake skin jacket and what it represents isn't the quote of the movie. It's so good. My snake skin jacket. And for me, it's some of my individuality and my belief in personal freedom. Not only that, but the way Cage delivers Lynch's writing of that combined with what Laura Dern says, there is this, there's this sing song. uh, It's almost like Shakespearean. Like it's like iambic pentameter when he's saying um, (laughs) he rhymes stab it and steer to Laura Dern saying that she got a place at cabin uh, Cape fear. Fear. It is, yeah, you are right. Like it's just, I mean, it's just all Lynch dialogue. There's this right rhythm. There. There's this rhythm to it, and then you hit that rhyme, and then you hit that big old electric guitar, and I'm just like, "Fuck yeah, yeah let's fucking go!" I'm all in. Does no, that, you. Does, does that uh, does that guitar lead directly into the scene of the concert and the band playing? Yes. Yep. I believe so. All right, yeah. that's really well done then, you know, just that transition, getting you to that club, already having the music play it. Uh, just simple editing tricks that are effective. I His snakeskin jacket in this film is iconic. Like, I want that fucking snakeskin jacket. I Apparently, want to... it was it's Cage's actual jacket. That's <laughs> incredible. I, that's I, so fucking cool. You're going to need to fact check me on this, but I heard that this was not a Lynch costume rack. Cage was like, don't worry. I got the suit for, I got the suit for Ripley. I, it's kind of, and he's just like, I just happen to have this jacket that represents my (laughs) personality. I believe in individual. It's so good. I like this movie made me really wish that cage and Lynch had done more work together. Cause it's kind of funny. Like we'll talk about this on like the cage scale, but cage is kind of like, the most like stable person in a lot of this movie. Like he's kind of, he's essentially playing the straight man in so many scenes of this film, which is, I mean, you hear a scene like that and you're like, how, like, how can this movie escalate over that level of like character? But it really does for so much of the film. And it's kind of like a match made in heaven, David Lynch and Nick cage, because both of them are able, like Lynch has the same kind of like, really weird like kind of over the top type of humor that nick cage is kind of known for doing yeah i i wonder how they got along because one thing we've talked about a lot with cage is that he kind of likes to be a bit of a wild card on set 
he's wild at heart. Um, particularly <laughs> during this early part of his career. And I feel like Lynch is the type of guy who doesn't like to fuck around on set. Like he has a very clear idea of what he wants to get on the day. And he doesn't want to waste time doing things that aren't going to add up to the vision that he has. And he's not an asshole about it. Maybe he's a little bit of, of a crank, but you know, I, I feel like maybe, I don't know, maybe it, maybe it's like a, a Cohen brothers situation. Yeah. Right? It's like too much friction. But I mean, Lynch does like let care. He does let actors play around. Like that's why so many people who have worked with them before love to work with them again. Cause they'll just be like, I just kind of want to do something. We were watching the making of Willem Dafoe, like, found the teeth in the jacket for this character like he was just like i'll do i got this far and lunch was just like yeah no you got it you, this is it you're perfect just keep doing that so he does like trust in actors but yeah i could see that one thing i want to talk about uh cage is that recently uh very much like you guys i watched vampire's kiss or rewatched it and then watching him at Wild at Heart, he's so much more reserved and focused in this movie. Yeah. And it was kind of jarring to watch because in Vampire's Kiss, he's just completely uncaged. Yeah. You know, you know what I mean? It's so, full uh, on, full on cage. It's it's a much more focused uh, performance and a much more directed performance. Feels like David Lynch was getting exactly what he wanted from Nicolas Cage. And the, you know, maybe they didn't, uh, maybe Cage didn't really like working with him or maybe it was just fine. Cause uh, yeah, he never was in another David Lynch project like Kyle MacLachlan or Jack Nance or even Laura Dern. Yeah. Well, Cage also does kind of level up and become like a different tier of actor though. Like before yeah. David Lynch gets a chance to make another movie and also Nick Cage might have been just more expensive after leaving Las Vegas after 95 and Lynch didn't make a movie in between this and, uh, Lost Highway, I believe, is his next film in 97. Um, Cage isn't uh, just playing completely the straight man the next scene in the the metal concert scene when Love he's there. Scene, um, so it starts out, the van's playing, and a guy comes dancing up on Lula. And but it's like, like heavy, it's like heavy, like metal punk type. Music. Yeah, heavy like metal. And Nick Cage just like throws up like a rock sign to the crowd, and everybody stops and just looks at this dude. Even the band stops playing. Yeah, yeah the band just, they like know, they know Sailor. And there's like, he's a regular. So they just, uh, they completely stop. You have the fight sequence, which is like almost like slapsticky. It's really good. And then, uh, you know, he, he makes the dude kick, kind of kicks his ass a little bit. And he's just like, I want to show you if you guys know this one. Grabs the mic and then just starts seeing Love Me by Elvis at a metal concert. That's my favorite scene. The whole club thing. Leading it's up so to good. It's so good. It's just Lynch is the master at tone shifting. Like, I don't know another filmmaker who has his ability to just like, we're having a fun time and it's a nightmare or it's just like, this is like a very, like, very riled up kind of wild scene. And then we're just going to just gently slide into just like some very well, nice. It's, it's calm the dark, music. the dark humor that he's able to accomplish. Mm -hmm. I think is part of it too. It's not just erratic tone shifting. It is this two in one type of deal that I, I think he kind of pioneered in a way because now, you know, in the 21st century, we are able to view it in a different way than people did when 
these movies were first started started coming out like when blue velvet came out people didn't know how to respond to that they didn't know that it was okay to laugh to the weird ass shit in that movie same here with wild at heart like it, it wasn't a widespread uh cinematic trope to have these deeply dark humorous yeah. elements in, in a movie. Like, when Lynch grabs a mic and just starts, or when uh, Cage grabs the mic and starts singing, it's okay for you to start laughing when yeah. you just hear him saying Elvis. Like, it's not, it's a funny thing to have in there. I do agree, Colin, that this is kind of like the peak of the movie. There are some really great moments down the line, too, um, that we're about to get to, but this is just so perfectly executed. This whole concert sequence with him singing, it's it is jarring in the best possible way that it's really it does. Yeah. It doesn't throw you off the momentum of the movie and it, it it's jarring in a way that like pulls you closer in to mm-hmm. the movie. It's, it's amazing. Well, I loved it. And then uh, right after, because also it, it gets so like light and sensual. And then we get into the first sex scene of the film, which is the first of many sex scenes of, varying uh beauty i'll say uh (laughs) um but i it's just so well done it's so like erotic but in a very artful way um i can't remember what the exact uh thing was that he used whenever they were shooting it but that projected light Mm -hmm. onto the camera different shades of light during the scene to like reflect the colors of the rainbow um Hey, oh, Lee got some food. cookies for us. Oh, oh, cookies. Oh, thank you, Lee. Yummy. Thank you. Um, Colin, we'll give you some cookies over Zoom. Yeah. Don't worry. Thanks. You can mail them. Yeah, I'll mail them to you. <laughs> Watch Wild at Heart again while, while snacking on those. Uh, uh, there's one scene I want to talk about, and it bothers me. And I think it's during this scene after uh, the first sex scene. Uh, is it Lula or is it Lola? Lula. L-U-L-A. The scene where Lula talks about that like uncle guy who like abused her. Oh, oh yeah. God, that scene is so upsetting. I can't tell if it's supposed to be like gut wrenching and disturbing or if it's kind of going for a, a little tiny laugh when Diane Ladd is like beating him with the purse and everything like that. I think I think that scene, it goes too far, but that's just what you get with a David Lynch movie. He pushes those boundaries. Uh, what did you guys think of that scene? It only it's only like disturbing. a disturbing 15 seconds or something. Deeply, I think, deeply disturbing. I think that it's meant to be like an upsetting thing, but it's I mean, these are two people who do not know how to like as much as they're in love with each other, it's like it's like puppy dog love. Like it's like we just want to love like the good things that we like about each other and we don't want to bring up drama. Like there is a big secret that Sailor has that he just keeps from Lula because he doesn't want any kind of drama. He just wants to only keep things in this light, happy, honeymoon, rainbow kind of state of things. I think and it's also key it, to just informing Lula as a character. Yeah. Well, I mean, it definitely it definitely informs a scene later on in the film and just makes it even more upsetting. Um, but yeah, I think that's the point because we see that scene and Lula doesn't like expound upon it like to Sailor, like open up anything else that he doesn't already know about what happened from her childhood. So it's just kind of there as like almost like a 
non-therapy kind of a thing. Like, it's just like, yeah, this is a person that has uh, some skeletons exactly. in their closet. Um, um, we're also introduced to the whole private detective subplot mm-hmm. here with um, Harry Dean Stanton, which kind of is like the part of the movie that drags the most for me. Like I was always kind of waiting for it to just get back to cage and Dern uh, during these sequences. I love Harry Dean Stanton and I love um, what's her name? Diane Ladd, um, who, by the way, uh, we haven't mentioned yet is Laura Dern's actual mother. Mm-hmm. Uh, oh, which, yeah, that's right. Yeah. It just awesome. adds like a whole nother element to the film. That is really, really crazy. Uh, they have some great scenes together. Um, but I, I wasn't the biggest fan of this subplot. I was a little lost in terms of like how much this contributed to the main plot line. I know that it would be a little bit kind of um, relentless to just focus on Cage and, and Dern on Lula and, and Sailor nonstop and never cut away to anything else because Cage does like to give his stories these layers and, you know, have like build out the world. He really likes to kind of invite you into this like twisted version of reality. And it's really tough to do that if you're just kind of locked in to two characters and you never see anything else. So I understand like why we needed this. And we do get some good stuff. We do get some some good sequences here. But I I was always in the back of my head being like, can we just get back to Cage a little bit? Yeah, I so it doesn't drag too much for me in those scenes just because I think that Diane Ladd is so good as Marietta, like that she just kind of draws you in with like she is a classic type of uh, woman that I know uh, from my family that lives in South Georgia who just like puts on all these airs of like we have to be prim and proper and nice, but has like Lipstick this all real darkness underneath. Yeah. Yeah. That's what most people in South Georgia do. Um, they don't know where their lips are, um, but her. And then also um, I love Harry Dean Stanton. Cause he's just the best, like good guy. He's just like the nice guy that you want to have in every movie. But really I love J E Freeman who plays Santos in this movie. He is like, he plays that role perfectly because he never overacts it. And he's one of the few people in the film who doesn't actually overact their part. Um, but like, he just plays it so menacing under the surface. Um, like one of my favorite sequences in the movie is cause you know, Marietta, um, recruits Johnny Farragut, uh, Harry Dean Stanton to find his daughter and find sailor and everything. And immediately afterwards is like, this fucking dude isn't going to do anything. I have to actually hire a hitman. <laughs> and then you have the scene with them sitting on the porch. He's just like, you want me to shoot sailor in the head with a gun? Yes. I love that line. In the forehead? Yes. Wrong. <laughs> Always better to blow a hole through the back of the head, right through the bridge of the nose. Um, Lots of Hunter, irreparable brain damage. Hunter, I'm really glad you brought up that scene because that scene is like what? It's intercut with another scene. With uh, It's intercut with a sex scene. That's yeah. right. Oh. <laughs> I think that's so crazy, be like a disaster, but uh, the sound design holds it all together because David Lynch, he always has this like windy, hollow sound. And when it cuts to that, there's like this noise sound effect and it's really effective. And like 
it's always like in his like command, even if it is slightly going off the rails a little bit in that scene, but his sound design kept me in. And Ernest, I agree 100% with everything you said about the subplot. Um, I think it's necessary to the film because it is about uh, Sailor and Lula. You know, they're trying to get away from her mother and they have these like gangster hitman, whatever, after them. So it is it is kind of needed to give the movie more plot and more yeah. stakes. But the more it goes into like these like gangster characters, the more, unfortunately, I really just start to check out of the movie. And exactly. I think I think a lot of it becomes uh, a little less interesting than what David Lynch probably intended. It kind of just feels like more uh, Twin Peaks stuff. You have like, uh, you know, the seedy gangstery characters. And I think he was just doing a lot of stuff from Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks a little bit and putting more of that into uh, Wild at Heart. I also wouldn't be surprised if that's a big part, if it's a bigger part of the book than it is even in the movie. The whole idea of like the hit squad and like these under this underground belly of like assassins. Like I I said, whenever we were watching this movie, that the plot of John Wick 2 owes a lot to uh, this film of the whole like there's all these underground assassins everywhere and you slide a a, you send them a silver dollar. And that means that you want to put the hit out on somebody. I was trying to do some research real quick uh, on like how this differs from the book, but I feel like he stuck fairly close. If anything, he probably added more uh, stuff of Sailor and Lula. Um, It makes sense because he says even in the making of this movie that like... (laughs) For some reason in his brain, it's funny watching the featurette because he's just like, it just makes sense to me. Wild at heart, Wizard of Oz. Wild at heart, Wizard of Oz. And you're like, nobody else made that connection, David. Like, I don't know where that came from, but it works. Apparently he added the Sherilyn Fenn character, the the girl in the car accident. Um, That wasn't in the book. And... um, William Morgan Shepard, who plays Mr. Reindeer. Oh, yeah. Oh, okay. That was the guy. That's like the king of the underground assassins. That's the shot. That is the shot that I learned that could be Bryant had passed. Yeah. So, so that's all Lynch. That's not in the book at all. Um, and yeah, according to Wikipedia right here, like I mentioned earlier, um, Cage asked Lynch if he could bring this, uh, wear this snakeskin jacket that he owned. (laughs) And Lynch incorporated incorporated the jacket into the script. That's amazing. That That's seems awesome. like a specific thing that would either be from like the novel or the original script. So that kind of blows my mind that that was improvised. That was a cage piece. So perfect while watching it. Mm-hmm. Also, Laura Dern convinced Cage to go on a weekend road trip with her to Las Vegas to bond before they started shooting. Wow. So they had yeah. a bender. <laughs> they, yeah, they had a bender. They got some chemistry there. And then they're like, well, let's just fuck. Let's, I mean, we're going to do, we're a fake doing it. So let's just, you know, yeah, let's see what happens. Movie. That could be a movie of itself. <laughs> I love that. Um, Cause I think it's right around this time. It's one of the things that's intercut with the assassins is that we are introduced to the Crispin Glover character, uh, Jingle Dell, um, as he's. <laughs> it seems like such a 
kind of from left field thing to bring into the movie. It's like, how does this have anything to do with what is going on? It's like a classic, like Lynch thing exactly. to like having it in there where it's like maybe 90 seconds of the movie adding this guy in there, but it adds in this like very unnerving nature to the whole film. And I mean, if we're again, for doing the wizard of Oz kind of, outlining that this is your scarecrow this is the the one without a brain on uh dorothy's path yep. that's an interesting way to put it because like i know the movie has these wizard of oz like uh elements to it they certainly talk about it a lot throughout the movie but little details like that just completely go over me just like really that's what crispin glover was supposed to be the scarecrow i mean that's just me that is just entirely i just picked i thought about that now seeing this movie for the second time i was like oh is this like the scarecrow kind of character on the path it is totally pointless but it is kind of entertaining <laughs> like i it, it comes and goes it's it's you're just kind of you're just kind of of two minds or at least i was like half of you is like this is the most random thing, the the most random like tangent to go down into. But also, I'm making it's like, a sandwich. <laughs> I'm making my lunch for tomorrow. Covered with like bologna and bread. It's so gross. Lynch made that himself. He probably tore up a bunch of lunch meat and was like, <laughs> "I believe it, man, dude." I was watching. I I when I watched Blue Velvet, I on Criterion. I watched all of the special features on the Criterion. And there's a moment in one of the little making ofs that they have on there where it shows David Lynch holding a sledgehammer to smash the TV that's in the apartment in the final sequence of the movie that is cracked. Like he smashed that himself and he placed dust bunnies under the radiator of the apartment, something that the camera would never pick up. But he had to himself with his own hands place these prop dust bunnies underneath the radiator to add that layer of realism or not even realism. It's it's because it's beyond that. I mean, it's about creating a sense of like of 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 space of yeah. like this tangible like world it's like the going. artist inside of it. i mean there's a reason why he's kind of moved away from making films and now he just actually just makes art and like i mean that's what he a did mansion in los angeles films now yeah the weatherman really. yeah now he's just a weatherman you can just tune <laughs> in instead of watching wild at heart just check in on david lynch's weather updates on his Good youtube morning channel. um yeah so after this um we get them in uh, New Orleans. We see that bar scene uh, with the man who like quacks. Like I yeah. never thought like an Oompa Loompa, but you are right. That's almost like his voice. It's the guy uh, who plays uh, uh, Jerry Horn or Benjamin Horn in Twin Peaks. Yeah. He's also in Commando. He plays Sully. <laughs> That's, I, I reckon from uh, Commando even. Uh, yeah. He's in the Warriors. I forget his name, but uh, he's just like walking down the street. And is he the one making the crazy noises or is it the other guy walking with him? The high pitched noises? Yeah. Well, that's I what I was saying. It sounds like a. I think that that's him who does that. Um, I he think it sounds like a munchkin guy. from Wizard of Oz. Yeah. He, he, not he, Oompa Loompa. Not an Oompa. I said an Oompa Loompa, <laughs> and then I now am sorry. I'm, I'm in a munchkin. Um, also, I, I did, I wanted to say something earlier, but also in the sequence, we just have David Lynch just like, or actually two different scenes while we're in New Orleans. It's just David Lynch spending like 20 seconds on just an artist playing 
either playing a guitar or a woman like singing at a bar in New Orleans. David Lynch loves his music. Yeah, he is. He has such a fascination with music and with sound, most notably in Twin Peaks, The Return, where every episode ended with a three minute musical number by a band. It's a so very round. It's so I can't like put my <laughs> finger on like why and like other than what I've just been saying, like it adds that extra layer of believability to the world that we're witnessing. But it's like you're watching and you're like, I don't understand like how this clicks, but it does. It's just it just like, adds like just yeah, it's just something that's been throughout his career. I mean, you think about his very first film, Eraserhead, there's just like one of the most disturbing scenes uh, in any film I've ever watched where it's just a woman with like weird orb type things on her face. That's just singing heaven uh, while stomping on like these like spermicidal looking like worms that fall on a stage next to her. (laughs) It's all in black and white. Like it's just like burned image in your head. But it again, it just lets her sing the entire song right there. Um, do we want to get into a sailor's secret that he's been keeping from Laura Dern? So that's pretty important to the overall movie and to their uh, relationship. There's right before we get into that, uh, there's like two big things that actually mark like the drastic tone shift in this movie. Cause there's like hints at the little like CD underbelly and everything that the, the, darkness that's simmering underneath throughout this film but then two scenes that are kind of that are back to back to each with each other the first one is marietta's like psychotic break where she takes the lipstick and starts rubbing it on her wrist like she's cutting her wrist and then all over her face and then we see the car crash where um lula makes a comment like this is a bad omen do you think that this is a bad omen for us that i mean that scene is so eerie because i I've never seen a car crash depicted like how it is in this movie where you have the car crash victim, not dead, but also not like splayed out injured on the ground. She's mobile. She's walking around, but she's so concussed and like hurt from the car crash. She's still able to move her body, but she is like entirely delirious. Yeah. It's like, I need to find my wallet. My mom's going to kill me if I don't find my wallet. Yeah. To the point where it's like, you can see her like slowly breaking down and it happens over the course of just like seconds, essentially. And she just dies in front of them. And it was so shocking, but not shocking in the way that we're used to seeing a scene like this play out. Um, It's just done in a completely different way, you know? Um, and she's played by uh, Sherilyn Finn. Uh, is it Aubrey from Audrey? Yeah, Audrey from Twin Peaks. Mm-hmm. Yeah, another Twin Peaks. For, they're really all over this film. Um, so then we get into so that happens, and then we get into arriving at Big in Big Tuna. And one thing, one scene that I think I completely missed it the first time that I watched it uh, is because. Whenever uh, Santos puts out the hit, gives him the sil- silver dollars and everything, we see that one shadowy figure of the woman in New Orleans who's going to go on to uh, kill our boy Johnny. Um, and then you just see a house with this like that. And the screen turns red as you just see like this one little shack. 
And then the way that it's filmed that you just see them arrive in big tuna, everything's going good. They're like, yeah, we just got to make a stop by here. Everything um, pulls up and then you see the same shack and just this booming loud, like sound of like strings and like an orchestra, but it's just so loud out of nowhere. Like this is, we are now in the dark times. Like this is where it's happening here. The loud orchestra, it reminds me of uh, the scene in The Shining with Danny and the twins. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's, it's, it, it reminds me a lot of that. I think it, they do the same thing when uh, uh, Lula's mom turns around revealing lipstick is all over her face. Mm-hmm. I think the orchestral jarring music, as it's described in the subtitles, plays during that. Well, it's, it's Angelo uh, Bandalametti, Mendi. Yeah. Uh, who also did the music for Blue Velvet and Twin Peaks? Just absolute baller. Yeah, Angela Badalamenti is just a fucking Anger incredible. Really, yeah, uh, Badalamenti. <laughs> yeah, I don't even know any other non-Lynch films that he's worked on, just because I just associate him with David Lynch so he much. Has so many credits. I mean, um, I believe it. But Kevin it's, yeah. Fever, surprisingly, that's really oh really? Bizarre. Yeah, and I think he did a few of the Nightmare on Elm Street movies. Great composer. Love yeah. his work. Big, big fan of Angelo. Um, so it's kind of right around this time that we start to reveal um, the sailor's big secret. Well, it's set up earlier in the movie when we hear that Lula's dad died. Mm-hmm. And it's like alluded to. He set to, himself on fire. and Yes, that he set himself on fire, which, by the way, the shot that we get of this actual man on fire is so good. I love it when movies do that, when they're like, we're actually going to set a guy on fire. <laughs> it's so good. Uh, just adds like it It adds so much. But then it's a little bit, a little bit of a twist that, oh, no, he didn't set himself on fire. It was done to him by santos yeah um santos yeah and sailor was there for it he was the driver for the whole thing so he's like i didn't see anything i didn't know anything about what was going on in there uh, Sailor basically just uh ryan gosling and drive yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> except entertaining and not silent i so i do see like that part does the the kind of criminal side of things does drag a little bit but i do like some of the performances that elevate so specifically uh perdita uh played by isabella rossellini uh from a blue velvet fame um and kind of trying to figure out what her character is because the film doesn't really over explain what's happening in this society you just know that you're there like the reason why Sailor wants to go to Big Tuna is to find out if there's a contract out on him to, for him to die. And she lies and says, no, there isn't anything on you. Um, we then are introduced to this like band of inbreds. Yes, um, here we go. Featuring, uh, well, before we get to the big one, uh, featuring Jack Nance, um, who has, I think my favorite uh, line in the whole movie, is just like, my dog's bark some (laughs) mentally you picture my dog but i have not told you the type dog i have perhaps you might even picture toto 
from the Wizard of Oz. <laughs> hey, Hunter, that's actually really good. That's good Jack <laughs> I can Jack- tell you my dog is always with me. Oof. Was Jack Nance an Eraserhead, and then after that movie, did he just instantly age, like, 20 years? I don't know what happened. Like, I really, like, what, what happened to, like, 10, 20 years? Was, did he have, like, a coke problem or something that nobody knew about because he wasn't that big of an actor? Yeah, he was kind of a rough-looking guy, but a great guy. Love love Jack Nance. Love seeing him in uh, Twin Peaks and all, all, all the other David Lynch movies. So He's strange in Blue Velvet. Like there's one yeah. scene that doesn't even say anything to Kyle McLaughlin. He's just staring at him. <laughs> I forgot that he was even in that movie until I was like looking at his IMDb. And I was like, oh yeah, Jack Nance isn't Blue Velvet for like that one scene. He's just, you know, he's just friends with Lynch. Um, two of my other favorite things from that scene, whenever we meet the inbred hillbillies of uh of big tuna texas is the three obese women that just come in like dancing in the background and then as soon as jack nance says his whole dog monologue you just see a guy just walk up and snap fire and then the scene just cuts like it's it's so funny and like out of nowhere and you're like where am i on in the universe right now like there's nowhere that this place can be but that's when um, Willem Dafoe is introduced. Yes. yes. It, it takes, I think this movie's a little too long for what it is because it's like an hour and 20 minutes and that's when we're introducing Willem Dafoe and it's like, man, like there's like 40 minutes left. Like where's this, this movie kind of needs to pick up a little bit during, I think it's after the ambulance scene. That's when it, I kind of check out a little bit. I, I agree with that, especially because you see Willem Dafoe's uh, name in the opening credits. Hey, he's third build. Yeah, you're like waiting for it the whole time. And then it's like the movie just like goes on and on. And you're thinking like, all right, this is the scene. Oh, no. Okay, this is the scene. It's like an, uh, an hour and a half almost into the movie, we finally get introduced to Bobby Peru, but when we do, it's like a it's like a just an injection straight in for this film. It, he you clear the paint for this guy. It he is, is probably the most disgusting human being <laughs> I've ever seen in my life. Like prosthetic he, teeth, it is like ugly. It's probably some of the best fake teeth I've ever seen yeah. in a movie because it's not just in the teeth; it's in the way that Willem Dafoe plays it, where his lips are just like always up because he has giant prosthetics in, but like it, he just looks like just the most vile, disgusting creature that you have ever seen in your life. Willem Dafoe's voice is really strange, or not strange, but very different. Like he doesn't sound like how he normally would. You know, Willem Dafoe, he has that very distinct voice, and it's pretty much absent in um uh, his character, uh, the character Bobby that he's playing. Yeah, he he is doing like a draw, like a little bit of a southern draw, a little bit. Um, if he's doing a southern accent, then he's doing a bad southern accent. It's like so, it's like kind of southern, but like also like. Just well, it's, Will, Willem Dafoe's voice is kind of here it's sometimes. Name's Bobby yeah. Peru. <laughs> it's like, I don't even know what that accent is that he's doing, but it works. Um, so then uh, we get into, and I really like this. Well, like is the wrong word uh, for this sequence of events that happens because we have Johnny's murder scene, which is just like, a fucking mescaline induced nightmare. Like it is, I don't even know where this place is that he's being held, but it's horrifying. 
And then that paired with the Lulu Bobby Peru sexual assault scene. And it's important for this movie because the way that the film starts, we have multiple sex scenes between Cage and Lula where it's just like so sensual and loving and erotic over the top. And in these scenes, like all of the sexuality has been completely stripped and it just becomes horror. And like that parallel is just really, really effective to the point where the scene with uh, Laura Dern and Willem Dafoe is just really fucking difficult to watch. Like really, really tough to yeah. watch. They really Very dig into it. Listening to him just like whispering, fuck me. Yeah. It's like over and over again. And like, it's, it's like she almost gives into it a little bit, but then it's like played for comedy and he's just like, maybe next time. And then he walks away. Yeah. It starts in a place of humor and then it just gets darker and darker to becoming a full blown nightmare. And then it ends where the scene started. Like it's unbelievable. It's, it's really something. A dark, twisted, demented trip. Uh, Yeah. And just, and I mean, that's kind of the whole scene that we were talking about earlier with the little 15 20 second cutaway to lula getting raped as like a child kind of ties into this like fear of like it's happening again we haven't even mentioned yet that lula is pregnant Mm -hmm. um find that out the vomit stain on the motel floor that they just keep cutting to i mean these these are things like this is why people hated this movie when it came out why there were like hundreds of walkouts in the middle of a screening because Lynch, like he puts his female characters through hell. Like he is kind of uncompromising with how, uh, what he asks of, of his female performers a lot of times through his work, but he's able to do it in a way that's like not, um, exploitative. Yeah. And, and he's able to do it in in a way where like, the performance really shines through in all of these like deeply troubled female characters. And and you get these extremely uh, just sad, but, but um, layered performances from, from these actors, these actresses Uh, and Laura Dern is like top of the pile for me. It's like, it's such a good performance, but I understand why people were so kind of like taken aback by it because it is, it is brutal. It is tough to watch. It it it's not a good sit. Um, but I I feel like Lynch does it because it reflects reality in some way. Like the 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 sick twisted part of American society is that like women have to go through horrible things like this way more often than than they should. Like it's it's just it's not like there's like this happening to every woman, but we are in a position where it's like, um, you know, with the me too movement and everything we're we're, uh, confronting the fact that it's been like socially acceptable to like brutalize and, and objectify and be violent towards women. I think that Lynch is like in his own kind of sick, weird way, putting a spotlight on that. 
it's kind of it was interesting in the little featurette uh that's on the blu-ray like laura dern talks about how like her and david lynch view this scene as a scene of female empowerment which is something that i didn't even like it on its surface you're like what are you even talking about like that doesn't but i mean in the context of the story it does kind of you're right it is like it's putting a spotlight on it more than anything else because it's not it's not going it's not crossing the line all the way into being like just an unforgivable sit and you're not on the side of defoe no you're not on the it's side very of Bi- clear that yeah. he is a rotten human being exactly yeah, it could not be any clear that you're supposed to hate this dirt bag <laughs> one thing i want to say is that uh when, whenever I'm watching David Lynch movies or Twin Peaks or whatever, uh, I think it's always very clear that David Lynch really loves his characters and he loves the actors that he's working with. So even though they're put in a uncompromising scene sometimes, I think it's, um, how, how do I put this? Like, it's not exploitative. I think he, he wants his characters to kind of experience this darkness, but then ultimately, you know, get out of it, yeah. which is, which is a, a major theme of Blue Velvet that you recently rewatched, Ernest. Mm-hmm. His characters, they do go through this uh, terrible and even like humiliating scenes, but it's always so that they can, you know, kind of transcend out of that and like move on to a better life. It's, which I think it, is frankly kind of beautiful. <laughs> it's, it's confronting trauma, isn't it? Like mm-hmm. you've got to, trauma is ugly and it's, there's nothing like, happy and pretty about it but you can't ignore it and you can't like fight against it if you truly want to overcome it you have to stare at it and it's ugly rotten face to try to come to terms with it in some way and that's that's kind of in some way what he's doing in in a lot of his movies is contextualizing the trauma that these characters have endured in a way that is like you know, has some sick, weird, twisted humor to it to try to make sense of it. And it's also like he is making the audience come to terms with trauma because the characters will not come to terms with trauma. Like, Laura Dern never tells Nicolas Cage that this happened. Right. She never tells him. I guarantee, like, that even after the end of this movie and what happens later... She's not going to tell Nicolas Cage that this happened to her, just like she isn't going to tell Nicolas Cage or anyone else about the extent of the trauma that she went through as a child. Like, it's just it's making the audience, you, the audience member, have to deal with the trauma that the characters want, which is I mean, I don't really know any other filmmakers that kind of portray it like that. Usually it's you are coming to terms with a character's drama through the eyes of that character coming to terms with their trauma. But Lynch isn't actually giving you that level of cleanness and resolution because that's not how life works. Well, but I mean, not even life, but when you're just looking at these two people, you know, these are not normal people, you know, there's something very wrong with these two people. Obviously they love each other very much. And in some you know, it's kind of sick way. They're kind of perfect for each other. But if if these were more mentally stable, healthy uh, individuals, uh, in the case of Lula, she would not go back to him after he gets out of jail. Mm. She would not go back to him after he gets out of jail again. 
you know, she would go to therapy and she would talk about her trauma and she would try to heal and, and grow and learn and move on and not go on some, you know, uh, wild, crazy sex road trip with her uh, jailbird boyfriend. I don't, I don't think Sailor is a bad guy. And I don't think uh, Lula is a bad person either. I think they've just had like these dark paths that they're trying to break away from together. And, uh, you know, they're, they're just crazy kids and they're meant for each other. And, but they're just trying to understand uh, that the world is just wild at heart. Yeah. By the way, Nicolas Cage was 26 years old when this movie came out. So, uh, so what? Laura Dern was twenty four. Isn't he like he's like two years older than her, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah, she's nineteen sixty six. He's nineteen sixty, or she's sixty seven, and he's sixty four. Okay, so three years. So yeah. yeah. Um, I'm just saying, like he he looks. I mean, we said this before. <laughs> he looks but rough. Man. He does not look like Nick Cage does not. Oh man, just wait till we get into leaving Las Vegas. You're like, what is this? Like a fifty eight year old man? <laughs> like I don't know what is this guy. Um. He doesn't no, look I, bad. He just he looks like he could be like 32 and not 26. I this think is like, the way his face is shaped. Yes. Because now, I mean, look at him in 2021. He doesn't look much older than he does in these movies from the early 90s. He I just mean, kind of stayed this way. He looks a little bit rougher. Sure, around he the got edges, some, but some job. Some yeah, probably. Done. That uh, post Oscar. He got that Oscar check to get some facelift. By the way, his look, I pointed this out. He his entire cool vibe is what Julian Casablanca's based his whole <laughs> shtick off of from the strokes. The glasses, the It's jacket, incredible. That's an incredible take, and you're so right about that. The hair, the way you the way it on box and I thought that was hilarious. Do you think uh, uh, David Lynch and the author of Wild at Heart and Nicolas Cage get royalty checks from uh, <laughs> the strokes or the record company? Yes. Yeah. I'm, I'm sure every Julian, time Julian uh, wears a snakeskin jacket on stage at a concert, he has to like write a check to David Lynch and Nick Cage. Julian has to be a Lynch head. Like, come on. I could see it. I could see it. Um, let's let's dive into the robbery. Yeah. So now we're in like the last act of the film. Um, so we get uh, Cage in pantyhose once again. again man, just put this man Arizona. in pantyhose in every every movie. Not as good pantyhose as Raising Arizona, though. This this pantyhose is way more like see-through, which adds to like the Defoe face, but um, it's not very effective if you actually want to hide your face. <laughs> you might as well just not be wearing pantyhose. These people are stupid. Like, there's a this movie is comprised of very stupid people. Um, but the robbery goes wrong, and um, Sailor gets arrested, and Bobby shoots himself in Those the face. dummies. Dummy. This this the shots of him of the like the close-ups of uh Defoe's face with so him crying that pantyhose. <laughs> after the movie after the movie was over creepy. after the movie was over uh roommate of the pod Nathan uh was like home and he like came in we're like we just have to show you what willem dafoe looks like and we just went back and we just showed him that scene so you could see the close-up of willem dafoe's disgusting teeth and like how gross it was 
So uh, Bobby, he's getting shot at, but then he decides to kill himself while he's- No, I think it was a mistake. I think that like he fell on the gun. No, he no, turns I think the gun. Yeah, he kills himself. I think that's what happened. Maybe he's, he's like, I can't go back to prison, yeah. man. Maybe he's just like, no, I can't let the police kill Bobby Peru. We get a <laughs> sweet- dying on his own terms. We get a sweet practical uh, head explosion, too. That shot is altered. And on the Shout Select Blu-ray, did you guys watch the unaltered uh, footage? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Floating off? Because it's altered by, like, smoke. And, like, it happens so quick that you can't really notice it. I find it funny that violence, stuff like that, has to be censored. It's like, oh, this this mannequin, this fake zombie (laughs) head getting its head blown off. That needs to be censored. It's They're like, like if you want, if you want to avoid a rated X movie, you got to alter this scene. Yeah. It's like, who cares? What? And, and yet we get Cage and Dern just pounding, <laughs> heavy, steamy pounding. Lots of Dern nip all over here. It's and then, like, and my- like, uh, I'm sorry, I was gonna say it cuts to like the guys bleeding out from the robbery and like isn't like the guy's <laughs> hand missing and yeah he's just like i gotta find my hand they oh, can sew it back on and, and the, the dog, dog the dog has the hand just like trots away <laughs> it becomes a- it becomes like a coen brothers movie yeah. in that moment or just like- isn't sailor like on the ground being like oh i really let you down lola <laughs> it's like lula just screaming on the ground no his dive to the ground is incredible like put this man in the nfl combine right now like his broad jump is really there he could get picked up by a couple of teams he very nobly surrenders because uh, yeah he doesn't want to jeopardize his life anymore than <laughs> he already has so he, he's like he's like giving in he's like yep i've done a crime and now i gotta pay my debt do, do the time <laughs> and then he gets out Six after, years later? Yeah, he now has a six-year-old child. Um, and once again, Lula's there to pick him up, now with child. Um, and it seems like it's a little bit of a happy ending. Families together. But he's but not some, right. Yeah, yeah, something's not right. Sailor's just like, yes, or you guys were happy without me. I'm just going to go on and leave you be. Um <laughs> Also, before that, we get an incredible line read from Pace, the little boy, whenever Lula just almost just fucking crashes their car into another car and just like, Mama, you almost hit that person. <laughs> yeah. Remember when a sailor gives him like a lion and he's like, I guess this guy's my dad. He's all right. By <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he's a animal and he like takes it and hugs it. Um, I, all right. So I kind of wish that the movie double downed on uh sailor going back to jail because it happens so quick it's like oh we got to finish the end of the movie but the movie is so much more focused on like this crime narrative gangster society stuff yeah so uh, when it comes to sailor going out of jail again it doesn't quite feel as earned as it could have been i would have liked to have spent a little more time uh with them apart but I just don't think that was a uh, Lynch's goal for the movie. So who, who knows? Yeah. I almost wonder if an early draft, cause that does seem like something they would have more to like, Oh, you have to feel the absence of the two of them. But then maybe they were just like, no, let's just have these two characters be in the room with each other for as much as possible, which is what you want. I mean, yeah. I'd just rather see two, these two actors, these two incredible actors work off of each other. I did want to shout out, though, the scene of Dern and her mom 
in, I believe it is the police station. Yes. Um, yeah. Where Santos shows up and like tries to hug Dern. Oh, yeah. that scene is great. Uh, I, I have a new appreciation of that scene after watching the making up because they talk about how, because the, the, their real mother and daughter, uh, that moment is just so much more meaningful for them. Like the emotional catharsis of that scene. It's not just a mother daughter character, but it's an actual mother daughter. Like, you know, through these characters having this bonding moment. Um, and it's, it's great because you do get this little tinge of, um, I, I think for the entire movie, the mother character, the mom, she's painted a little bit one dimensionally, like just kind of like the pursuing mother that, wants to stop her daughter from being happy with her love. And then by the time you get to the movie, there's enough there to realize, especially with that scene, that this is actually like a loving mother. Like she just wants what's best for her daughter. She knows that this is a dude who was involved in this like seedy underground. Yeah. Yeah, Like she did did try to fuck him. Yeah. Yes. There is that, and that might be why yeah. she even wants to kill him. Yeah, we forgot to. That's like the whole thing at the beginning of the movie. That's why she tried to have Sailor killed in the beginning is because Sailor wouldn't fuck her. But the mom also got the the husband killed too, right? There's Santa. Yeah. So she's kind of she isn't very uh redeemable. It's almost like she's just trying to like it's because she's not a redeemable character, but it's like she's like trying to protect her daughter from right. the dark underground that she has found herself in. Yeah, she's just. Doing but her I mean, best also, she's mom. just she's the wicked witch. I mean, you literally see her flying next to the car at one point. Laura Dern throws water onto her photo, <laughs> like it's and the photo like disappears. Yeah, it's <laughs> literally it's, it's Lynch stuff, Lynch imagery, things fading away, smoke. I love it. So I really love this final act of the movie with Sailor coming out of jail. I think all of that is another. A highlight of the movie for me yeah well it's great because like it would have i think it it's not as good if the movie just ends right away with her picking him up but the fact that he leaves he's just like you guys were better off without me he leaves he gets beat up by and a then gang. walks down the street and just gets attacked by this gang um and then uh then we see our girl cheryl lee laura palmer herself as glenda the good witch yeah. pops comes down in a pink bubble <laughs> I love that scene, but I'm pretty sure that's a scene where at Cannes where that happened. Everyone just started booing. (laughs) I could. Yeah, that sounds about right. People are like, we fucking get it. okay, David, (laughs) they don't know cinema. I I so I love the pink aesthetic, though, from the bubble. And I love the music. It's that 90s like Yamaha keyboard fantasy sound Mm -hmm. to it. And I just love it. I mean, this the way that the color contrast in this movie is really good, especially in the first half of this movie where it's a lot more like everything is happy and in love with Lula and Sailor. Like everything is all very bright, very pastel colors. And then whenever we cut to Marietta, it's a lot of stuff is shrouded in shadow and very dark. And then it's kind of as the movie progresses, those two things blend together. Um, For one of the categories is best cage line. I have to give the worst cage line, which is when uh, the Good Witch shows up and (laughs) Nicolas Cage just like looks up and just says, the Good Witch. (laughs) (laughs) 
No, dude, that's great. Come it's, on. It's kind of incredible. I loved it, but I just, I don't know. I was, Dave was like, that's laugh. the take. That's the take. That's the one. And then she, she says, I'm wild at heart. She says, don't turn away from love, sailor. Don't turn away from love. Don't turn away from love. And he doesn't. He gets up and he runs back to his love. Well, he jumped in on the car. Yeah, he's just like, I'm sorry. Because he, he throws a slur at them. Uh, whenever he first sees it, he just gets back at me. He says, I'm sorry for calling you fellas homosexuals. <laughs> and then uh, the whole gang just like kind of like nods at him like, you go, kid. You go get your you, lady. You taught me a valuable lesson in life. <laughs> so it's so corny, but in the best kind of fucking way. And then uh, I think, as you said while we were watching the movie, Ernest, uh, the La La Land scene, yeah, where uh, Nick Cage goes running on top of the cars to go. If you look closely, you can see his like feet really like denting in the hoods. Of the car. <laughs> yeah, like he like fucked up some cars in the set for that. Has boots on the on the hoods of the car. And then uh, he sings her Love Me Tender. Which was set up as the song that he would only sing to his bride. Yeah. So we know. He sings Love Me Tender, and as soon as he starts singing, those credits start to roll. Oh, great choice. Perfect. Beautiful. The credits roll. If, yeah, like, beautiful. If we just had to watch that, it would be like kind of like, all right, come on. But the credits are rolling. It's like, yeah, yeah the movie's ending. Enjoy this nice song. Total epic sauce. <laughs> Yeah, that was that was I put that in my notes was total epic sauce. Um, so yeah, but that's uh that's wild at heart. Uh, what are your guys? Uh, if there, well, I'm I'm not the host here, Ernest. If you have any other rundowns, well, we have we have categories. Yeah, we got okay, some categories. Right. I, um, I right, we can treat. There's a couple scenes that we can talk about uh, through uh, some of these categories. Uh, for best cage line, this is one that we brushed over, but it made me laugh really hard. Um. Man, I had a boner with a capital O. Yes. <laughs> um, which was took place in a scene when they are still in, I think that they're in New Orleans in the scene. And Nick Cage is telling a story about a different woman that he fucked really good. And Laura Dern is turned on by this. Yes. Uh, fellas at home, don't do this. This will not work. Just try and put your lady in the mood by talking about your other sexual adventures that you had with a woman. She says she says the unrealistic aspect of this movie. <laughs> yeah. Oh, oh, baby, you better get back, get me back to that hotel. You got me hotter than Georgia asphalt. Georgia asphalt. And then, and then he repeats it, Georgia asphalt. <laughs> it's, it's funny. Yeah, no, like he repeats it. Like if the line didn't get a laugh the first time, he's like, nah, <laughs> Lynch was proud of that one. Uh, my, my pick for uh, cage quote is, um, it's a symbol of my individuality and my belief in personal freedom. I think that that's the winner. Um, a couple other ones. Uh, this is just a great moment. It's right uh, after Cage agrees. It's the day of the robbery. Uh, Cage is just standing there. It's like cuts to, I think that it's cuts from Johnny Farragut's death to this scene where it's just Cage just like standing there as only just says, what am I doing here? <laughs> great moment. <laughs> Make sure a nice uh, cage moment from Wild at Heart. So is this a is this a quote or is this uh, a moment like because we're splitting have, that into? I have two a moment categories. and a different thing. Do you have All any right. quotes, Colin? Um, no, Ernest. I think for quotes, like really, it's just the snakeskin jacket. I don't think anything can. That's can the winner. Yeah, 
So, uh, a so, couple other ones that I just really liked was, uh, I guess I started smoking when I was about four. My mama was already dead from lung cancer. <laughs> All of his parents died from uh, alcohol or drug-related ailments. And then, yeah, the this is my this is a snakeskin jacket. That whole thing and stab it and steer. Uh, what's your your uh, cage moment? Colin? Are we going into just general moments now? Yeah, yeah. Uh, one that pops to mind at the beginning after he bashes the head in of uh, the gentleman with the switchblade trying to attack him, sent by uh, Lula's mother. Uh, he just like does this stare and raises his uh, hand and points at a uh, Lula's mother, and it just lingers on that doesn't make any sense it's really good i love that scene it doesn't make any logical sense but it feels like it makes sense it feels like something that should happen in a movie it's just that stare and that point so that's a that's a favorite moment that comes to mind i think i think my my cage moment is the the club scene just because he he loved me yeah not only does he repeat the snakeskin quote in that scene after we had just heard it but then he sings the song in its entirety i'm pretty sure and just the whole vibe and look of that place like i i love that that's that's my pick yeah it's early on and there's really great moments later on too but that's when i was like holy shit cage in the house the only other couple to mention uh was the very end that we just talked about where he just sings love me tender uh really love that moment amazing um but then the other is just in the robbery scene we get like a vintage cage ah when he's like walking there like yeah give us all your money he just screams uh while wearing the pantyhose on his face but yeah i think that the club scene is uh my favorite cage moment because you see all the the aspects to cage's performance in sailor oh oh, another great moment is the scene where they're kissing with the sunset behind them oh my god you skipped right over that he does the flip out of the car yeah they're doing the kicks and everything and dancing because they just they really need music man it's (laughs) yeah she's like listening to the news on the on the in the she's car. like sailor you gotta find me some music on that thing <laughs> her no but you're right the way that he does that flip which is such a clean Amazing. athletic flip that he does out of there and they said um and then the high kicks in the making of they just like pulled over to the side of the road and happened to shoot it and it looked like that and it is like capturing the perfect that golden hour, that man. perfect golden hour Amazing. that you really get best if you're out on the west west coast or anything like the west side where everything is more flat out in that desert area and it just goes on for miles and miles. It's just fucking perfection. Um, one thing before we get to the recaging couch, unless you guys have any other moments you want to shout out. Well, let's let's save recaging couch for the end. Good cage or bad cage? Good cage. This is a good cage. Yeah. Definitely, this is great use I'm- of cage. I'm going to say this is great cage. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think this is a a great uh, Nick cage, not only just like a performance, but a great character for him to play too. How many cages out of 10? See, this is kind of a subdued cage, especially coming off of vampires kiss. It's like a six probably. What is, what are we, what are, what are we rating this on? Like how like insane. yeah, Yeah. The amount of cageness. Like like going like over the top and not and not like just the performance being uh, good. Yes. Yeah. No. Just his over the topness. Not uh. Not the quality. 
I'm going to say a seven, like the whole snake skin and like his whole Elvis thing and singing, like it's almost there, but I don't think it quite hits over yeah. the top level. Those I think I was going to give it like a five. Like, I think he's pretty subdued in this movie. Like in a lot of these yeah. scenes, he is Defoe, playing more the Defoe straight man. It's way crazier stuff to do. There's just but... so much other crazy things in it. Um, One thing I wanted to have, cause I, I wrote down a bunch of wizard of Oz parallels for this movie. Uh, I just wrote down a few of them. Uh, cause I don't want to go through all of them. Cause there's countless, but, uh, the whole the yellow brick road as the drive to New Orleans where both parties are just in search of something. Um, in the Wizard of Oz where Dorothy comes across like the apple trees that like the mean apple trees and stuff like that. Uh, it's Sailor and Lula stumbling onto the car wreck with the girl who dies at the scene, like this big wrench in their plan where things are starting to get dark along the journey. Um I, Lula's mom is the Wicked Witch. I mean, we talked all about that, but also like sending her flukies after uh, them to kind of stop their journey, like the flying monkeys in the Wizard of Oz. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one that I thought of that I was actually kind of happy of. Uh, what do you guys think of Defoe as the Oz character? Because he promises like all these big things, I'll help set you up for and then he your future and everything. Be, and he's yeah. just this liar, this very manipulative yeah. person. And you're waiting for him the whole movie. You're like waiting to get to Oz. Yeah. Um, and then uh scene where Sailor like goes back to jail is like the poppy scene in Wizard of Oz. Like Lula has to continue on with her journey without the help from her companions. And then, of course, like the heel clicking whenever she's in that one. Isn't really Toto mentioned scene. at one point? Yeah, there's the Jack Nance line about Toto. Yeah. Toto and the Wizard they, of Oz. You know what? They should have had a little dog with them in this movie. Why not? Why not have like a little terrier with Sailor and Lola? I didn't mention it uh, earlier, but another movie this actually kind of reminded me of, uh, probably because I just watched it pretty recently, is Sugarland Express, uh, early Spielberg joint, where it's just like two kids they're like young and they both just like really want something and they're kind of on the run from the law, but really they're just like thriving off of their love for each other. Very different films, but kind of reminded me a little bit of that. Uh, you guys ready for recaging couch, recaging couch. This one's, this one's tough. I mean, it's tougher than I thought because it's like, I was like, Oh, this won't be as hard because like, it's not a vampire's kiss thing where it's not like where we have to like figure out, like somebody who could match that level. You need someone who's going to be good against or with uh, Laura Dern. You I know, they they have a really good relationship, uh, chemistry in this movie, and I don't know who could really match that I, and I, be the Elvis weird thing that he's doing too. I thought of a terrible idea. I'm trying to think of who was big in like 1990s, late 80s, early 90s. It's a terrible choice, but imagine if this movie starred Kevin Costner. <laughs> wow. That's one. Uh, David Lynch would never work with Kevin Costner. <laughs> I just thought who was like really big in like 1990. Hmm, Kevin Costner. I tried, I tried to go through. I tried to go through like. Yeah, it's it I don't not know. work at all, but it's no. just it's to think about. I tried to think through like the usual suspects of Lynch's people, like Cal McLaughlin. I don't see it. Oh, Bill that's... Pullman. I don't really see it. Um, Kyle McLaughlin. He's too soft. Exactly. Like you kind of have to. He doesn't weird... have any edge to him yet. Or weirdly, he ever really did. Yeah, weirdly, one person who I thought of who like. 
I don't know why it's it like popped up in my head right away. And it would definitely make the movie different. Like you definitely have to alter some of it. But I think like early Tom Hanks could have created like 80 percent of Nick Cage's performance in this movie. I think the movie with Tom Hanks, it becomes more heartfelt and more lighthearted. That's the thing. You need that sleaze. You need what about like what about Sean Penn? I don't like know. Sean Penn. I don't know. I, I think he probably could have done this role in the early 90s. I'm glad it went to Nick Cage, but I think that's a decent choice. You Sean know who could have done you know, this. You know who would be phenomenal? Gary Oldman. In this era, Gary Oldman, when he was like in Leon the Professional, Fifth Element, Gary Oldman, like he, he would nail this. Yeah, he would have given it his all. And he would have like uh like uh, transformed into the role what about robert downey jr i have robert downey jr on my list as like the young rdj um i have him and ed norton on my list both of them like they're about the right age for this like role in this movie i don't i don't know if i like that i but robert downey jr i could see I think my favorite one of all of these, because uh, I wrote down a couple as just like that were also I the same thing as you as who was huge. I was like, could John Cusack be in this movie? Ooh, he could have done it, but I don't think he would have elevated. I like, no, I don't. I don't think so either. I think he would have been serviceable, but I don't think Lynch wants serviceable for these. I got, I got another good one. Joe Pesci. Oh, oh, Joe Pesci. No, I have a different Joe on my list, though, that I think is my favorite one. Um, he's slightly too old for the role, but you could like rewrite stuff to make it like even more of a thing like that he's getting the the younger gal and take her on the run and everything. Joey Pants himself, Joe Pantoliano. Yeah, that's that's a good one. He doesn't have this the the like the star power that Nick Cage has. You he doesn't, but like, I mean, Nick Cage isn't like he he has his moments in this movie, but I think Pantoliano is a great actor and he's able to kind of do like he's able to do comedy, but to play it straight. I'm going to have to look this guy up. Who Who is he's, this? He's in the Matrix. He's like the guy he's, that betrays them in the Matrix. Oh, the one who uh, eats the steak and yep. he's like, ignorance is bliss, man. Yep. Um, I have I have I have one, though, guys. What about River Phoenix? Yeah, sad, sad to to not have a, an actual career there, but mm-hmm. he was alive in in this time and he probably would have been up for the part. Maybe I haven't seen young. him do anything. Yeah, I think he's yeah, because well, he's in Stand By Me in 86. He's he's at least like 20, so he might have been too young, but he could have done it. Yeah, he could have done, done any role that was offered to him. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't. Because he never really did a performance of anything quite like this, but I mean, seeing his body of work, uh, how unfortunately cut short it was, like he had range. I feel like he could have done something like this. It would have had to have uh, dyed his hair, though, because Lynch loves having like a blonde and like a brunette side by side. So I think any actor, they'd have to like dye their hair black or something. Um, what? This, isn't, this isn't related to Wild at Heart, but uh, can I give you some insight into a Nick Cage casting that I was thinking of vampires kiss recast. Um, all right, just, just bear with me here, but imagine a Spider-Man three era, Tobey Maguire in that role. Yes. Oh yeah. Oh baby. (laughs) I just wanted to share that. I think they're a really good one. 
I think Toby would have, I, I could see him running down the street shouting, I'm a vampire. I think he would have done it. <laughs> like nobody, nobody ever unlocked something uh, quite like what Raimi unlocked in Spider-Man 3. I think the director saw that and said, no, we're good. Can you do something else? Like, we, we got that tape. We don't want to do anything with it, though. Toby had a lot of untapped potential, and it's very yes. yeah. <laughs> and we haven't seen him in like 15 years. I want him back. Well, I guess we saw him in Gatsby, which was 2013. So we're we're coming up on that 10 year mark. God, I. Mm. But he Sorry to detract. I just had to give some Toby love. No, he he's a talented guy. I I think that um there is that. He has a little bit more of that handsomeness that Cage can't ever get to. He he kind of gets to it in this movie a little bit, but Cage is not like part of what makes him so uh, appealing in a weird way is that he's not handsome. Mm -hmm. And obviously, you know, uh, Toby is not fucking Brad Pitt, but Toby, you know, Toby, he has more of a clean look, though. He, he has like there's got to be like some some dirtiness to this character, which like, uh, like some edge to it, which reminds me of the last pick that I wanted to bring up. Harvey Keitel. I, I think like he's Har- too old. Uh, yeah. Isn't he? How, how what year was he? Yeah. Born? Yeah. He's a bit old. If you take him from like seven years earlier, though, I could I could yeah, definitely like see mean that. Streets Keitel. Like, yeah. Yeah. 70s Keitel. Totally. He. He would have. I I don't know how much he's done that has like pure humor in it, like pure like comedy, because there is like some a real like dark comedy to this film that Kaitel like is almost too straight. Yeah, but but I mean, think about like um, what's his name from Blue Vel Blue Velvet? Um, Hopper. Yeah, Dennis yeah, Hopper. Hopper. That's like, true. There is this extreme like hilarity to the dramatic darkness right like cage or uh lynch is able to tap into that and and i don't think Kaitel ever made a movie with lynch i don't think so no so it would have been cool to to see it in this world but we got uh some good picks there unless anybody has any last ones before we wrap up that they want to shout out no that's uh that's good I can't think of anyone else who could play Cage. Hunter, you brought up some uh, good A-listers from the time. I think they would have been serviceable, but I don't think they would have quite have done what Cage did. It's a great movie. We all loved it. We recommend it if you're able to find it. It's not streaming anywhere. Um, So if you're able to check it out via Blu-ray or DVD, um, go for it. It's worth checking out. It's worth seeking out. Um, Just just a fun watch i mean it's it's an interesting introduction into lynch um just because he is able to to really really get weird and this one gets weird but um you know going into lynch via the way of cage is a it's just an interesting crossroads here that we've arrived at mm-hmm. and um you know the it's wild at heart. What's the quote that Lula says? This whole world's wild at heart and weird on top. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hunter, and, where does this uh, where does this rank in your David Lynch uh, filmography? Is it top tier Lynch? Is it mid tier Lynch? Or is it bottom tier? So it's kind of funny because I love this movie, but this is 
probably one of my least favorite movies of his. Yes. Like I would, I mean, I'd still would my clear top three is Eraserhead, Mulholland Drive and Blue Velvet. And then like, I mean, if we're throwing like Twin Peaks in there, um, like Fire Walk With Me and stuff like that, it's I it's hard to judge Fire Walk With Me and his filmography because it's just like solely dependent on another piece of media. So it's kind of hard to like factor that into a ratings. But yeah, I, I'd put this in like, mid to lower tier for me i like this movie more than lost highway have you ever okay. seen lost highway hunter no i had lost highway and inland empire the only two lynch films i have not seen inland empire because i just please show me how to watch that movie i would love to watch it uh wild at heart there's a lot that i really love and admire with it but unfortunately there are some story aspects that just i'm not super engaged with so uh I, it's a it's definitely a good movie. I like watching it. I like it a little bit more every time I do rewatch it. And I think that's mm -hmm. a good sign of a of a great movie. Yeah, but, uh, I feel the I think, same way. I think I have this at like four stars on Letterboxd. But honestly, it could just be like a, a three and a half. But I'll keep it at that four. It's a four star movie overall. It, 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 it gets the David Lynch four bump. Yeah, it depends yeah. on if you want to gauge it compared to Lynch's entire body of work or just mm -hmm. kind of its own thing. Uh, it's still really good, even if uh, I do enjoy some of his other movies much more. Still lots of great stuff in it, for sure. I have only seen, seen Twin Peaks and Blue Velvet. I am a, a Lynch baby boy who has yet to open his eyes fully. Um, I'm going to watch a Mulholland Drive next because I have the criterion of that. Mm. Um, that so, my personal favorite of, of his movies. That movie yeah. is awesome. So I, I, I loved it just as its own movie. And I, I have enough Lynch uh, knowledge from, from my limited viewings to be able to appreciate what he's trying to do in this movie. So I enjoy the hell out of it. Thank you, Colin, so much for coming on. Thanks, Colin. Um, we're oh, going to have you on for a double episode this week with leaving Las Vegas. So stick around for that. Um, is there anything that you would like to plug real quick before we head out? Um, I am a co-host of a defunct podcast known <laughs> as the Snyder Colin podcast. Uh, I'm not going to actually be plugging it, but if I am going to uh, publicly talk about that podcast, it is on hiatus, but I have talked to my co-host and we do want to revamp it sometime in the future. We just don't know when, I don't know. We'll just have to wait and see. Uh, I, I can plug my uh, YouTube channel, Media Hell, if you want to see some of uh, my cringy videos that I uh, that I really had a lot of fun putting together. Hunters in some of them. Yeah, I if you want to see my like star making performances, Dean Hearshot and Viewpoint Motive, yeah. please check that out. They're not good videos, but go ahead, check them out. <laughs> if you like David Lynch, then you'll like yeah. Viewpoint Motive because we just made Twin Peaks. Yeah, it's our Twin Peaks from seven years ago. And you can check out We Bought a Mic at We Bought a Mic on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook. Also give us a email at WeBoughtAMic at gmail.com if you want to let us know what you thought of any of the things we talked about. Please donate if you can. Thanks to all the donors for donating. Recommend the show. Subscribe. Leave us a review. And keep it safe. Keep it chill. Keep it with Bammy. And we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.
one man out.